Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. I am your host of the number one global fintech podcast and radio show. I'm Brett King. And joining me in the host hot seat today is our good pal from Breaking Banks Europe, Ajit Tripathi. He's in the co-host seat today. Uh, You can catch Ajit um, and the rest of the Breaking Banks Europe team weekly on Provoke.fm or your podcast listening platform of choice. Ajit, welcome back to the mainstay. Thank you, Brett. This is a very, very special show and I've been really looking forward to it. Why is it it special, Ajit? Well, we are hosting one of the best-known innovators and entrepreneurs in the whole crypto space, uh, Do Kwan, founder of Terraform Labs. Great. Well, we're going to introduce uh, Do right now. So Do Kwan is uh, is also our guest today. He's coming to us live from uh, Seoul, South Korea. He's the co-founder and CEO of Terra. It's both a platform and a family of price-stable cryptocurrencies aimed at mass adoption. Prior to Terra, Do founded uh, Enify, a wireless mesh networking startup. I love to get into uh, uh, discussing mesh networking today as well, if if he doesn't mind. Um, and also, um, Do uh, was profiled on the Forbes 30 Under 30 for his work in founding uh, Terra. Uh, to uh, we'll get into a bit more uh, detail on that, but um, Terra has raised 32 million to date from some of the biggest names in crypto, such as Binance, Arrington, XRP, Polychain Capital, and uh, already has established partnerships throughout uh, South Korea, and, and I'm guessing that's expanding as well. Doe, welcome to Breaking Banks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. So first of all, you know, just a um, sort of a, a check. How, how is um, you know Seoul coping with the whole um, COVID thing these days? You know, obviously South Korea got a, a, a lot of attention early in the piece, but you guys sort of got on top of that very quickly, and we haven't heard much since. So what, what's life like now during the uh, the more uh, you know advanced uh, stages of the pandemic um, as we've been going through it globally? I would say it's fairly stable. I would say the main difference is uh, most of the bars and clubs uh, are shut down. So everything past 10, uh, there's no place selling drinks or food. But, uh, you know, like on a day-to-day, if you go to parks or hotels, like they're they're uh, fairly, fairly packed. So I think everybody's happy with the situation now. Very cool. Um, and... Uh, you, where, did you study abroad or, um, you know, what's your, your background personally? Yeah, so I spent a decent amount of my formative years in Canada, um, you know, due to, um, you know, the family business. But, and then uh, I went to high school in Seoul and uh, college in the U.S. at Stanford. Great. Stanford. Very nice. What, what's the family business? Can you talk oh, about my that? dad was in pharmaceutical shipping and medical equipment. So, um, which uh, med tech, health tech now? Oh, he's retired now. He's retired. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I you know it's one of those areas that uh, is getting very, very interesting. The whole med tech and and so forth. Your your background, though, I was very interested in your um, you know crypt not 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 just your crypto experience, obviously, but your mesh networking experience. Tell, tell us a little bit about about that. So I, I actually spent uh, like about two years in the Korean military as uh, part of the Signal Corps in the DMZ. So what that means is that in Korea, on the North Korea to South Korea border, there's about you know four kilometers uh, of border that uh, is supposed to be demilitarized, but is actually one of the highest militarized zones in the world. Um, so 
I was part of, you know, like uh, the infantry units that did nighttime patrol throughout the mountains and uh, fields that make up the DMZ. And that what's kind of interesting is that because the demilitarized zone is always ready for, let's say, uh, power failures or telecom failures and things like that, uh, in order for the units to communicate with each other, they use a set of really heavy military radios, about, you know, 30 kilos in weights. And then so if you put that on as well as, uh, you know, full body armor, uh, two grenades, uh, five clips of bullets, and then a military rifle as well as a helmet, that's you're actually getting like a decent amount of workup if uh, you're working throughout the night, like 10, 12 hours. But anyways, so what, what was kind of interesting is that, that I've always been used to this paradigm whereby like I'm always searching for like a Wi-Fi router right. or let's say uh, trying to make sure that I have LTE connectivity. But what's kind of interesting is how, you know, like all of these different signal units were communicating with each other over radio in a fully decentralized mesh network. So I started to think about like, could there be interesting applications of this uh, in the real world? So I, I forgot about that for a while. And then like first job out of college, I was at Microsoft and they weren't really giving me super interesting work. So I started to play around with this prototype whereby mobile phones and laptops could connect to each other via Wi-Fi direct to Bluetooth. So wrote some really interesting routing algorithms there. Uh, and then when the prototype started to do, I, I, I think reach a certain level of functionality, I decided that it could be interesting to do a startup with it and then left with some of my friends uh, to, to create Anify. So for those that aren't familiar with uh, mesh networking, mesh networking allows us to extend the um, uh, so, sort of the internet type uh, protocol across uh, devices that don't have access to a core internet access node, such as a Wi-Fi router or a... Um, uh, you know, a cell tower, what you do is you extend uh, that network by allowing individual devices in the network to connect each other and extend the, the broad network. So if you could, for example, if you could reach someone's phone, if you were close enough to someone else's phone and they were connected to the internet, you could, um, you know, draw down on, on that. What it, what it allows us to do is build broad internet access capability across an area where you don't have, you know, um, access points uh, built out. So for, uh, and, and um, you know, you can also build apps that uh, synchronize, uh, you know, with, with the web and stuff like that when they come back into, um, you know, main internet radio reception areas or access to cell towers and so forth. So could, could be very important technology for, um, uh, digital inclusion globally, particularly in more remote areas where there's less uh, sort of stable internet access. So um, what's happening with NEFI these days before we get into Terra, though? Yeah, so we sort of transitioned it to a B2B business. So it, it turns out that, you know, like digital and uh, network inclusion is a really valuable mission for, for, a smart start, uh, for a small startup. It's easier to make revenue if you target large venues. So we turned it into like a turnkey B2B uh, SDK solution targeting, you know, large amusement parks, uh, you know, retail locations like shopping malls and things like that. So like our first uh, client was Everland, which is one of the largest amusement parks in Asia, uh, you know, seeing about eight to 10 million visitors annually. Uh, and then, yeah, so we, we built up like, um, like a decent client list before I uh, left to focus on full-time on, on Terra in 2017. Oh, so my co-founder is running it, yeah. Sorry? Your co-founder? My, my co-founder is running it, yeah. Okay, awesome. Great. All right, so let's dive into Terra. Tell us a bit of backstory. Um, you know, you, you, you've come from, uh, you know, the Stanford background, um, you know, and so forth. What, what uh, drove you towards crypto going from, from Anify? Yeah, so um, you could imagine that, a similar set of search queries for mesh networks would also turn up hits like Ethereum and Bitcoin and things like that. So like if you enter like distributed network or, or things like that, actually a fair number of hits happen to be crypto related entries. So I, I would say that's sort of how I started to get information uh, about crypto. Uh, and then after that, um, I um, 
got randomly invited to this Facebook chat group of about, I would say, seven, eight, eight friends from college. Uh, and then they were all talking about, you know, things like uh, Bitcoin, Monero, Ethereum. I would say this was in like late 2016 or so. Uh, and then, yeah, so that discussion turned out to be really interesting. So I started to invest more and more of my time. Uh, you know, studying up on on these different protocols and networks, and uh, just going to community meetups and things like that. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that that's how I I got my start in crypto. And then that group grew to a large Discord server, about two hundred and fifty people, like working on different projects, launching startups, and uh, that that's sort of uh, how I began my crypto journey. Um, though a lot of people, you know, uh, that we talked to in crypto uh, got their, uh, started their journey with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems you uh, probably took a step further and you started with, uh, you know, how we can build applications with blockchain. What's, uh, what's, what's the journey there? Sure. So I, I remember um, thinking when I first heard about crypto, it's, like the most interesting component is allowing things to do happen with money that you can't do using regulated fiat networks. And the reason for that is because, you know, compliance has uh, this really weird characteristic where it only is, it's only additive, it's never reductive. So uh, with, you know, like forms of money like this, you generally have sort of a rush to the exits, if you will, in terms of being more overregulated and less convenient with the passage of time. So in some sense, like fintech over the last 10 years has taken major steps back as, as well as taking some steps forward. So, but if you looked at like the early networks, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, Bitcoin is a great alternative to gold, but it's mm -hmm. actually not a great alternative to money, right? If you look at Ethereum, it's a really interesting computing platform, but it relies on the ingenuity of other people to be able to build extensions to money, like Ether in and of itself, doesn't allow you to do more with the with your financial stack. There's a fairly strong argument to be made. If you know, if you're if you're looking at this from the outside, and and you know, you might make the argument. Well, wasn't that what Bitcoin was supposed to be? Sort of this uh, decentralized global digital currency. But the reality is, you know, Bitcoin really had a design flaw in it, which was that. You know, 21 million, um, you know, limited supply, which created uh, inflationary effects and speculation that led to now, you know, Bitcoin not acting as a cryptocurrency in the classic sense where you use it as a replacement for fiat, but um, that it was essentially, you know, that's why people hodl it, you know, it, it, the speculative nature that it's going to be worth more in the future. So if you want to create something in the crypto space that's a true cryptocurrency at its core it's got to be about frictionless value exchange it's easy for people to spend and so how do you fix that from a design perspective though yeah so I, I i think you're absolutely right like the way that bitcoin is being used it's it's a very valuable antithesis to uh you know like the quantitative easing that's happening in, in most uh, central banking currencies today. But if you look at like the core components of money, like cash, uh, it has very simple features, right? So if you look at money, it's a fairly simple technical product that should be easy to spend and two, attractive to hold. And, um, you know, I, I would say that most of the things that we focused on at Terra over the last three to four years is to be able to do just those things to create a money that is easy to spend and attractive to hold. From the perspective of that sort of, you know, how, how do you get, um, so, so what is the currency on top of the Terra network? What, what's that called? Yeah, so we, we have a number of currencies actually. So we have Terra USD, which uh, fixes its price to the US dollar. Okay. Uh, Terra, Terra W to the Korean won. So we have about 20 different fiat pairs on, okay. on the Terra network. Yeah. And um, do a question on that, right? So you built a, a full 
uh, fintech stack on top of uh, the algorithmic stablecoin mechanism. You know, for years, uh, I think a lot of experts continued to challenge the viability of blockchain technology as a basis for any, you know, large-scale consumer-facing fintech application. Uh, now you built a whole stack and you have a lot of users. How many? I don't know how many, but uh, how did you solve the problems of, you know, scalability, security, and uh, user experience for on, on blockchain technology for the average consumer? Yeah, so uh, that's that's uh, pretty broad, but um, I would say Terra is one of the, uh, shall we say, f- uh, one of the very early large-scale experiments in using a proof-of-stake blockchain to be able to secure value, uh, tokenized value in lots of different forms. Right, so uh, we are already, uh, you know, powering payment networks in Korea and Mongolia to the tune of, let's say, 2.5 million users. Uh, we have, you know, a synthetic assets protocol whereby stablecoins can be used as a gateway to invest into lots of different asset classes like U.S. equities, commodities, ETFs. We have more than 500 million dollars of value on something that launched a couple weeks ago uh, in. Uh, that where whereby users are keeping lots of savings value uh, in in something called anchor protocol. Um, so in in terms of let's say security and um, and uh, you know scalability, uh, you know like the average block time of the Terra blockchain is about six seconds, which uh, and then you know TPS that's possible at current current iteration of the network is about a thousand transactions per second. Uh, this is possible because, uh, you know, unlike Bitcoin or Ethereum that uses a proof of a proof of work consensus mechanism, which means that uh, the nodes that are running on the network have to solve hard mathematical problems to be able to validate blocks, we use something called proof of stake, whereby whereby the nodes that are holding the Luna token merely have to vote to agree to get a transaction passed instead of solving that hard mathematical problem. So it's it's far more scalable and it's um, a lot more environmentally friendly than what you would find in some of the older networks in existence. So so one of the things um, I saw on your CNBC um, thing you did with CryptoTrader is you talked about the fact that, um, you know, particularly on the Ethereum network, the dApp, um, you know, model, the the application model on top of uh, Ethereum, it was never, you, 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 you say it was never focused on user adoption, um, but for a, a crypto, a true cryptocurrency that you're going to use to buy stuff with, obviously that's got to be a core aim is, you know, get as many people using it as, as quickly as possible so that you've got those value exchange mechanisms. So um, talk about the um, the limitations and, and how you guys are dealing with Terra in terms of those, that sort of transaction per second throughput. Because if we look at say the likes of Alipay, you know, these days where during the, the midst of, um, you know, singles day, you're talking about 500,000 transactions per second. Um, you know, one of the the key limitations um, that, you know, we're realizing with blockchain is getting up to those sort of values of transaction throughput become um, a lot harder with blockchain than than traditional networks potentially, and and you know where you see this going with blockchain and and Terra itself, though. Yeah, um, so I I would say like a lot of the existing problems of uh, you know crypto apps that are live today is that they're focused inwards rather than focusing outwards. So what that means is there's just so much money to be made by you know building like a very limited use case to people that are already trading, earning, and uh, you know creating assets on on Ethereum. So even if you have a service that can help the lives of a hundred people that are each rolling, let's say five, ten, fifty million dollars, that also that already brings a lot of value to your protocol. So uh, like a lot of the DeFi apps on Ethereum today are uh, intended to serve a uh, already crypto native audience. So at Terra, we sort of said, okay, um, you know, creating the next uh, pickle coin or let's say the French fry coin is interesting, but how can, how can we get to a state whereby users can keep their money in a savings account 
and earn something that justifies their cost of capital, right? So how can we get to a state whereby when a user lends money to other people, he gets more than 0.01% and is getting screwed over by inflation every year? How right. can we get so, to so that the core concept being that under the time value money principle, that if you hold US currency over time, the interest rate is lower than the inflationary risk, you know, potentially. And so you're actually the value of what you're holding is is shrinking, right? Right, absolutely. And um, yeah, that, that's that's a huge problem, obviously, because uh, you know, eroding the value of household savings is something that really uh disadvantages uh, the middle class and lower income families. Because if you look at people that are high, high net worth, they're already sufficiently hedged against inflation by making lots of different investments. Whereas, you know, like an average household, most of the money is going to be locked up in, let's say, a house and some household savings. So uh, it's, a, it's a very important problem to solve. And very few people in crypto are trying to solve it today. So, so um, there's been a lot of focus, particularly during the ICO phase and now with NFTs and so forth, on token pricing. Um, but, you know, how was the fundamentals different in terms of the tokens you guys are deploying on, on, on Terra, um, you know, particularly, say, UST? You, you say it's, uh, uh, you know, a sta- stable coin. Um, you know, how do you stop it from being speculative? Yeah. So uh, the system has a set of finely calibrated incentives to, uh, you know, sort of will the price of Terra USD close to a dollar. And uh, it, it relies on a set of uh, price making or arbitrage mechanisms in order to do this. So at any given time, a user can trade in a dollar's worth of Luna against the system to get one Terra USD. And at any given time, he can also trade in one Terra USD to the system to get a dollar's worth of Luna. So the reason why this is able to keep the price of Terra USD close to a dollar is because, let's say, if the if Terra USD is trading at ninety cents, users have incentives to buy up Terra USD from the open market to swap it against the system for a dollar's worth of Luna to capture ten percent arbitrage, and vice versa. He has the opposite incentive to buy a dollar's worth of Luna. To trade it against, uh, to trade it for one Terra USD, if the stablecoin is trading at one point one dollars, once again offering a ten percent arbitrage. So, um, how does how does Luna differ from UST? Is, is Luna the transacting currency, whereas the UST is the currency you you store value in? No, so you can sort of think about Luna as uh, if you think about Terra USD and Terra Terra W and all the stablecoins as the um, cash equivalents in the Terra ecosystem, you can think about Luna as the equity token in, in this entire system. So uh, Luna benefits from you know, growing adoption of Terra in a couple of different ways. So number one, uh, as Terra USD gets more transacted and its market cap grows, the supply of Luna must shrink. Because in order to mint one Terra USD, you need to burn a dollar's worth of Luna. Which means that you know quantity theory of money, supply supply shrinks, unit price must increase. Number two, uh, when Terra stablecoins switch hands, it pays a small transaction fee, similar to many different blockchain networks, and then that fee accrues to Luna uh, or, or the people that have staked Luna on the blockchain. So as Terra transaction volume grows across our family of payments, uh, you know investment products, uh, savings products all the transaction fees accrue to people that stake Luna in the form of, let's say, cash flow. So as transaction volume grows, so does the cash flows to Luna. So do a slightly different question on this, right? So all of these users and transactions, I'm sure generate a lot of data. So how do you handle all of that data, uh, given that you know blockchains don't necessarily scale very well uh, with for a lot of data? Yeah, so we, we have a couple of different initiatives that are going on. So, for example, uh, we have an in-house project called Mantle, uh, which is just a um, you know, set of incentivized nodes to quickly index all the blockchain data and then to service it up to, uh, you'd say, analytical dashboards or uh, you know, like reporting tools so that they can be consumed very quickly. So it's like a GraphQL interface that yeah. uh, eats up and indexes lots of data. 
We're also working with the team to sort of historically store a lot of the important data on the Terra blockchain uh, on our weave. So uh, that data can be served up quickly. So there's a number of dashboards like Flipside Crypto and uh, some, uh, some, some other dashboards that are coming out that's offering a lot of insight. Awesome. Yeah, um, I, we've got a break in a moment for um, commercial, but uh, I would love to talk about as, as we come back from break, um, you know, we, we just saw um, on uh, March 30th, Dan Schulman, um, you know, PayPal CEO talking about um, why digital currencies will make the economy more inclusive and uh, definitely would like to get into that. But, you know, also talking about the CDBC uh, trials in, in China and what we can learn from that, you know, at Libra, we can get into that as well. So, um, hey, listen, guys, uh, we're uh, going to take a quick break. You're listening to Breaking Banks. We're uh, talking to Do Kwan on uh, Terra, um, USTs, cryptocurrency, stable coins, and all of that goodness. We will be right back after this short break. Stay with us. The Breaking Banks Europe podcast brings you European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators, and leaders, all innovating in the rapidly evolving fintech scene. Hi, I'm Matteo Rezzi. I am Ajit Ripati. This is Matthias Kröner. I'm Megan Johnson. I am Paolo Cironi. I'm Nina Mohanty. Join us and some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in fintech as we bring you insights into European fintech. Find us wherever you normally listen to your podcasts or at provoke.fm. Most of you probably think that we're in the middle of a bear market, but I don't really understand how that can be true. Because if you were to apply traditional user number valuation metrics to things like EOS and Tron, EOS, for instance, the unit value of an EOS user would be above $10 million. And given that Justin Tron is the only person that's using Tron, the unit value of a Tron user is $900 million, which seems pretty high to me. So insofar that you have blockchains that are not delivering any value, they shouldn't be valued anything at all, right? What I say is that the days of token prices that are not backed up by user fundamentals are over and gone. Going forward, we should stop asking projects how many, uh, how many followers that they have in their Telegram rooms. We should stop asking them when they plan to do airdrops. We should stop asking them how many Twitter followers that their founders may have. We should be asking them the one thing that matters is how they, how they plan to deliver the promise of their technology to millions and millions of users. So we're not there yet, but uh, I think we're making some strong strides to uh, make that happen. Welcome to Breaking Banks. Today we are talking to, you know, you just heard a crypto trader on CNBC talking to, uh, to Do Kwan and uh, he really told us that South Korea runs on Terra, which is quite remarkable for a blockchain-based fintech ecosystem. Uh, so, so, but that creates a lot of interesting questions for us. So Do, as you, you know, you and Terra, uh, expand and grow in US and Europe, what sort of challenges do you see? Because you know consumer preferences and regulation are somewhat different. So how, is, how has that journey been for you so far? Yeah, so uh, I would say, you know, our different suite of products are more appealing in different regions. So uh, for example, our payment solutions are doing really well in Asia, where the average settlement time is longer and the tolerance for uh, getting working capital back quickly, so settlement times, the desire for that is stronger in Asia than lots of places in the West. So payments are doing really well in Asia. Uh, we're seeing lots of uh, countries where the ability to invest in foreign equities is limited either by adversarial regulation or by limited access to brokerages, uh, you know, be really um, induced by our synthetics uh, asset protocol Mirror. So for example, our top market uh, for Mirror protocol is Thailand, uh, you know, taking up about 35% of total volume and usership. Next market being China, third market Indonesia, which is remarkable given we've done no localization or marketing or mm -hmm. uh, done anything of the sort in each of those markets. 
And um, cool. I'll have to yeah. put you in touch with the um, the Thai tech uh, startup ecosystem as well through um, you know, Paul Ark and Nietzsche and and the guys here, the tech source people. They're a pretty interesting group in in Thailand. We 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 should we should take that offline. What about um, you know, Ajit? You had a question on on digital identity. Yeah. So uh, you know, I'm glad you brought up uh, Indonesia. So one of my fondest memories of Indonesia is that a lot of people don't have a last name. So, you know, uh, and a lot of people just go on first names, which means uh, it's not quite clear often, you know, and, and, you know, it's not necessary that everyone has documentation, passports, proof of address and things like that, which is kind of what the legacy financial system is built on. So how do you solve for digital identity in a, in a payments network like that? Sure. Um, so I, I think that's a really interesting question. So uh, for the payment solutions that we have rolled out, uh, you know, users have the option of doing uh, one of two things. They can top up into the wallet uh, by using Terra stablecoins directly, or they can use, let's say, uh, banking integrations, right? Uh, so uh, so th these banking integrations are quite similar to Plaid. And then in order to be able to use them, you need to be uh, giving authentication from your bank account. So uh, from that angle, like if you want to use the fiat banking rails, you do have some of that fiat uh, banking identity baked in. And furthermore, as this hooks up to e-commerce merchants or offline merchants, uh, you know those guys uh, have you know uh, do a decent amount of information collection from users. So collecting those things together, I think we're we're pretty much relying on conventional identity for now, but. You know, digital identity sometime in the future can have really interesting applications. Mm -hmm. So, does Terra have its own wallet ecosystem, or are you guys co-opting other wallets? We, we do have a wallet ecosystem. So, there's you know, like for example, Zengo out of Israel, also quite heavily used in the U.S. Math Wallet out of China. Um, Say so we're fairly well integrated at this point with lots of different wallets. Yeah, and where does Chai fit in? Yeah, so. Um, Chai is a is an e-wallet that we founded about two years ago. So the idea was that we would use this wallet to drive uh, the ability for Terra stablecoins to be used for payments in lots of places in East Asia and Southeast Asia. So it's sort of like, let's say, the Nexus phone of the Terra ecosystem, if you will. So it showcases the ability of, of what can happen when Terra stablecoins are put to work in part of a payment system. So today, uh, Chai... Uh, has about you know two and a half million users uh, in Korea at the moment, uh, and is processing about one and a half one point six billion dollars uh, annually. It's servicing about forty five of the largest e commerce merchants like Ticket Monster, uh, Yanorja, uh, you know food delivery in uh, guys like Hello Nature and Market Curly, uh, the largest convenience stores chain CU. So it's getting to a state where we're closing the retail loop on the things that users can buy using uh, the, the, the Terra Payments Network. Let me read for you um, from a piece that uh, um, Dan Schulman, the CEO of PayPal, did in uh, Fortune magazine, um, you know, just back on March 30th. This is what he said about uh, digital currencies improving financial inclusion. And then, Doe, I'd like your comments on it. He said, mainstream adoption of digital currencies would expand accessibility, particularly for those who are underrepresented and have lower incomes. The need for this access was evident in the rollout of pandemic stimulus payments in the United States, which were late in reaching and in some cases failed to reach millions of un banked Americans, many of whom were people of colour and those with lesser means. Those individuals that could access these much-needed funds were sadly disproportionately burdened with cheque cashing and processing fees and charges. Digital wallets and currencies can help fill this critical gap and ensure that people can get direct access to the money they need instantaneously. Great quote and um, sort of talks to... 
particularly the CDBC rollout in China that we've seen, um, you know, now going out to, I think it's six cities now um, across China, but, you know, Shenzhen and and, um, uh, and so forth there, where the Chinese government injected, they, they created uh, different wallets, but they are now co-opting Alipay and Tencent WeChat <laughs> Pay, et cetera, and they inject the cryptocurrency directly into the community by giving some 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 of your CDBC directly in your wallet and now you can go out and buy stuff. And so it's very clearly built towards this, um, you know, once it's in your wallet, you're going to spend it, right? There's a clear value exchange. But looking forward for things like universal basic income and the problems that Dan Schulman's talking about and things like that, there's some pretty interesting, um, you know, operational differences we can create with digital currencies uh, instead of sort of real world, um, you know, fiat um, in respect to that. So uh, getting back to Terra, though, um, you know, what are the mechanisms that you've created where you can see, you know, potentially a big acceleration in adoption of Terra, you know, uh, or, um, you know, the stable coins underneath it? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I would say, you know, different digital currencies, uh, you know, intended to be built for this type of value transfer has different objectives. So uh, if you look at the Chinese CBDC, it's really a construct whereby uh, this new form of money is is intended to make more efficient the value transfer between the state and its citizens, which means that, for example, if China wanted to uh, do like a giant Hongbao scheme to implement some form of UBI against a certain segment of its population, then it becomes as simple as selecting a set of wallet addresses and dropping a bunch of currencies there. And it's immediately usable through things like WeChat and Alipay. That's not to say that it's going to make the relationship or uh, or value transfer mechanisms between people and people and people and merchants more efficiently. That's because like the way that CBDCs are going to be designed is it's going to follow like all the same legacy regulations and restrictions that come with existing currency. So it's built on a different infrastructure, right? But the things that you are not able to do using a traditional fiat rails, you still wouldn't be able to do. And in some sense, it raises some important questions of what can happen to users' privacy or who has real control of these assets once it's controlled in like a centralized, uh, you know, government-run ledger and things like that. So for Terra, it's really it's it's payment apps are designed to make the relationship uh, or value transfer mechanisms between the merchants and the consumer more efficient. So two benefits of using Terra payments: number one, we settle uh, every in every block, so about six seconds or six point five seconds on the Terra blockchain, versus let's say uh, the seven days that it takes to settle in Korea, ten days that it takes to settle in Japan, and then so on and so forth. So this is important because uh, for a lot of small businesses or freelancers, they need uh, money right away in order to be able to buy things or pay for things. So for example, like a cab driver in Singapore needs the fares from his day of rides right away so that he can buy fuel for next day of rides and put family uh, put food on his family's table. Or like if you're like a small, a small restaurant in Japan, for instance, like you need that money quickly to be able to buy ingredients for next days of operations. So the ability to cut down drastically on settlement times is one of the one of these things that digital currencies can do instrumentally well, and it's uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's uh, Terra's the first uh, sort of payment network to implement this at scale. Second benefit is this is uh, this is specifically the one block settlement capability, or uh, yeah, so one one block uh, settlement capability as well as you know. Like we've built up an infrastructure of being able to settle to merchants and uh, right. getting regulatory right. clearance. Because merchant that, uh, settlement is is obviously key, as you say, for them being able to utilize the currency. Right. And what right. was the second piece you were going to talk about? It's uh, lower transaction fees. So average uh, cost of settlements is about uh, 2.73%. But um, most of the costs don't actually accrue on the B2C layer. So consumers actually don't see any of the direct costs associated with making a payment, but all the costs actually accrue on the settlement layer when the payment service actually settles to the merchant. And it's actually like a, a very high margin and interesting uh, type of business, whereby as uh, with the passage of time, like the costs 
from running these payments goes down, but you still get to maintain and keep the same margin. But by settling directly to merchants on the blockchain itself, we're able to drastically cut down on fees such that uh, you know, from like 2.7 to 3%, the commercial rates that we charge is anywhere between 1.2 to 1.5%, which is significantly lower than what any of the competition is charging in Korea today. So merchants obviously really love that. So though, uh, in a world where, you know, let's say central banks are uh, starting to issue or at least start to think about issuing their own digital currencies as, as in the case of Thailand recently, uh, do you think uh, they're going to be threatened by uh, payment systems like Terra? Yeah, so um, I, I would say different central banks are going to be sensitive to different things. So for example, in Korea, like a big concern is whether... I. I mean, I think in Korea, they're less worried about things like money laundering. I think less of that happens here. But one of the things that the BOK is really sensitive to is uh, maintaining capital controls. So if you have an effective uh, you know, currency that is usable everywhere and can be transmitted freely across borders, that's something that really makes it difficult to maintain capital control regimes. So I would say there is definitely a portion of that challenge. But in terms of retail payments... Uh, I think they're less concerned about that uh, because, you know, like the only thing that it does is that it makes the lives of ordinary consumers and merchants easier on a day-to-day basis. That makes sense. Very cool. Right. So as you, you know, as Terra expands uh, to US and Europe and gains adoption in the West, uh, what sort of experience have you had with the uh, you know regulators or uh, or sort of other differences that you have seen and how do you plan to address those uh, challenges going forward yeah is it is it like a um, you know do you have to go through the whole education process of of teaching the regulator about your tech before it's co-opted or are you guys just getting out there and doing it and dealing with regulators as the uh, um, opportunities arise yeah so um, a couple of things. So uh, for one thing, I think the use case that's going to make more sense in more developed markets like Europe or the US is a savings protocol Anchor. So to give a short summary of how Anchor works is that it's basically a very simple system whereby a user can deposit funds into like an app or you know any other service and earn a 20% interest on their USD denominated savings. So it's basically a decentralized savings account. So the reason why we think this is going to make more sense is that you know payments infrastructures in uh, the U.S. and Europe are fairly mature, so um, you know there's there's a lot of efficiencies, uh, inefficiencies, but at the same time, you know a lot of good enough narratives that are going around. Whereas in terms of interest rates, like twenty percent is super killer. So like it's it's actually if we even got like one of the fintech companies to integrate with Anchor Protocol such that they're offering a 20% yield on unused user deposits. Then in that case, it's commercial suicide for all the others to not try to adopt the same thing. Because for example, if Venmo was offering 20% interest rate, like in six months, Square Cash App is going to go out of business until they uh, you know, are able to offer competitive rates. So our goal here is to um, you know, use the savings uh, protocol as a Trojan horse to get this into as many wallets and fintech apps and different things like that as possible, and then use that as a segue to, uh, you know, adopt some of our payment solutions and some of the other things as as we grow in those markets. How does the protocol deliver rates that are so much higher than, let's say, in the fiat system today? I mean, I work in DeFi, so you know, you could turn that question around. But we'd love to hear. We'd love to hear your view on it. Right. So um, what most people don't know about blockchains is that you you actually, there's this thing called staking. And what that means is that the blockchain is giving you, let's say, 10, 12% interest on holding assets like Luna in, uh, in, uh, in on the blockchain. So uh, these deposits are, are Luna denominated and let's say the, the yields are Luna denominated. And then same for, let's say, Ethereum when it goes to 2.0. And a lot of different proof-of-stake networks like Polkadot, uh, like Cosmos Atom, collective market cap of which is in you know, uh, tens of billions of dollars and hundreds of billions of dollars, in, uh, including Ethereum. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that there's tens of billions of dollars of value that's being created and printed each year. And another way to think about this is that it's an uncorrelated 
monetary policy to the federal funds rate. And that's what's interesting. In the sense that each of these blockchains have fixed monetary policies that have nothing to do with the federal funds rate. So basically how the system works is that when a user makes a stablecoin deposit, a portion of these deposits are used to acquire staking positions across multiple different POS networks. So uh, a portion of these deposits would go to you know, creating like a staking position on Cosmos Atom or Ethereum or Algorand. And then the interests that are accruing to each of these positions gets conferred to the depositor in the form of a stable yield after being liquidated for stablecoin. So basically, it's tapping into the fixed monetary policies of blockchain networks to be able to power a high yield for stablecoin depositors. That's really, really cool. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty awesome. Very cool. Yeah, um, you want to you want to get into Mars coin, Ajit? Yeah, yeah. So you know, uh, so, 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 I, so I, here I'll I'll give you a thought problem, though. You know, um, and I'd be really interested. In Ajit and I've had this little project that we've been going back and forth on. Um, you know, Elon obviously is uh, is getting into the whole crypto space. Talks about Dogecoin, and um, you know, he's obviously um, you know a big fan of Bitcoin right now. Uh, you can buy a Tesla with it. But one of the more interesting challenges is um, you know you know what sort of currency would we have on Mars? Potentially, and so I'll um, I'll I'll put it in it, it, sort of this way: is you know one of the big differences about the Martian economy from the Terran economy, using uh, Terra's uh, etymology. But um, it, one of the big differences will be that the whole Martian economy in you know, at least in the initial uh, period of colonization of Mars, let's say for the first hundred years, is going to be geared towards self-sustainability, so that uh, Mars uh, can be independent from from Earth. So the, one of the reasons I really like the Mars coin idea is right because it makes us ask the question, which is, if we were to redesign the financial system from exactly. scratch without any of this legacy, right, and all the mistakes we might have made in history and all the technical debt. What would, would money look them, like right? in in the future? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, how do you think? Um, you know, in a, in a best case scenario, how would you redesign money to be be better for the world? I I, I think a couple of things. So, um, I think one of the problems with money is that it's it rewards consumption over savings. So, and um, if you look at economic theory, there's good arguments as to why that's something that's positive for the world. But I think. Uh, a system whereby you have a consumption-driven economy that where, whereby the values are inculcated in favor of recklessness instead of uh, frugality is, is not great. So I think we should try to get to a system whereby any unit of accounts needs to be pegged to something that is other than the current CPI. So uh, I think the value should be pegged to things that people actually spend the vast majority of their wealth on, like, for example, like a real estate index uh, or let's say, uh, you know, like software index or like uh, in, in some sense, like recursively tied to the NASDAQ. In, 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 so like assets that are, I would say, more relevant today than it was in, let's say, 1970s. Uh, and second, I think we need to get to a state where the sources of yield are more variegated. So, um, you know, people need to be earning more by lending it out or keeping it in private depository institutions instead of, you know, freely giving it out uh, at like something that is even less than inflation. I would say third, there should be fewer restrictions on how we can spend our money. So a lot of the uh, excuses for uh, introducing things like capital controls and know your customer rules is that, oh, this money might be used to fund terrorists. But in fact, like really it's to accomplish you know, the state's economic incentives. Like for example, keeping money in domestic borders instead of letting them move abroad. So uh, I, I would say that you should have, uh, that blockchain technology allows ways in which, uh, you know, terrorist organizations and uh, organizations that shouldn't be getting the money are more highly censored. But at the same time, money can flow freely uh, for all these different types of use cases and thereby like you're really owning the assets that you're holding in your bank account. Absolutely. Sounds very cool. So um, tell us about um, the effect that 
the pandemic had on on Terra and the work that you've been doing? Did you see an uptick? Um, you know, have you used that for more development time? You know, what what really happened during COVID for you guys in terms of growth and expansion? Yeah. So one of the things that COVID definitely slowed down is uh, we were we we were not able to have uh, the same set of licensing discussions in order to expand into more countries. So uh, I would say expanding outside of Korea slowed down significantly. Uh, so in terms of international expansion, it was a big minus. Uh, in terms of domestic growth, it's been overall very healthy. So for example, uh, we we had you know it, when in the beginning when COVID hit, we had a lot of companies that were working in the hospitality category, like Yanorja or uh, so some others. So the volumes there decreased significantly. But general purpose e-commerce and grocery delivery and food delivery, those categories all exploded. So uh, all led to a pretty positive uh, you know, volume and usership uptick throughout 2020 and uh, throughout this year. So uh, I would say generally the pandemic's been pretty bad for everything else, but for tariff payment volumes, it's been rather good. Oh, congrats! Um, and w- what are your what are your plans uh, over the next um, you know twelve months in terms of uh, continuing that? Yeah, so I, I I would say in terms of payments, like the big focus until the pandemic closes would be to grow uh, volumes and to offer uh, lots of different value propositions to users in Korea. So it'd be things like revenue based financing for merchants to make using Terra payments a lot more sticky than it is today. I would say a second step is to really grow the AUM of Anchor by offering this SDK to be integrated into lots of different fintech apps and neobanks such that people can start to see this high yield across a large family of different clients and and consumer-facing apps. So, yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I think crypto custody built into challenger banks is just something that's going to have to happen. And I think also the fact that, you know, wallets of the future, AI-based smart wallets are obviously going to um, treat cryptos just like they do fiat and it won't really matter where the, uh, you know, the source of funds are coming from and things like that. So I think there's, you know, the, the whole challenger bank alignment with cryptos or smart wallets generally aligned with uh, with the cryptocurrencies, especially um, stuff like what you're building on Terra is, is great. So, um, Doe, look, this has been a great conversation. For for any of you that want to sort of check this out, we will tweet out the uh, CNBC presentation um, that uh, Doe did on, on Crypto Trader on CNBC. Um, also, of course, check out Terra.money. Doe, how can people find out more about yourself? Where, where do they go to contact you or reach out to Terra? Yeah, so um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So D0H0K1, please feel free to send me a DM. Also, my telegrams are always open. It's uh, at Dokwan. So uh, we'd love to chat if you're looking to build something interesting on Terra and to reinvent the future of finance. Awesome. Arjit, thanks for uh, helping us set this up with Doe. Thank you so much. It's It's been a privilege. Thank you so much, Doe. And yeah, fantastic, fantastic story, Doe. And um, we wish you all the best. And um, you know, of course, uh, we'd we'd love to have you back on the show and give us a progress update at some point. Sounds great. That's it for Breaking Banks this week, guys. Uh, you've been listening uh, to our conversation on Terra, terra.money. Again, uh, check it out. And um, uh, don't forget, um, you know, we, we're now coming up on our eighth uh, year for Breaking Banks. So there's a big back catalogue. Um, you know, go, be sure to go back and check out some of our classic crypto interviews with people like Charlie Shrem and Brock Pierce and, and others in the space. Um, you know, to find out uh, about some of the historical developments of uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain that we've been observing through the lifetime of uh, Breaking Banks. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.